0: I'm Elizabeth Reese. I'm Marjorie Punnett. This is Best to the Nest, the podcast that is all about creating strong, comfortable, beautiful nests that prepare us to fly. Hi, Marjorie. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. We have a lot to talk about today. and Yeah, we do. A, a lot of intense stuff. And I think there were a couple of articles that I read in the last few days that really sparked the desire to have this conversation, and at its core... It's about the adjustments that we as women make when we leave our nest and we go out into the world and the things that we have to adjust because we're women in order to uh succeed in the workplace and in order to try to ensure our basic safety when
1: we're out yeah, and about. And this, this comes in the shadow, too, of uh, the shootings in Atlanta, which just happened. Yeah. So all of, there's just a lot of violence. There's a lot of unrest going on. And I think what is interesting about what we're going to talk about is we're talking it. We're going to talk about violence from our perspective, from the female perspective. And, and I think that's a valid conversation.
0: Yeah. I think so too. So women in London have been protesting and we'll get to that. And we'll also talk about women in the workplace. And this really interesting headline that I came across that says that career advice for women is essentially gaslighting and why that is. But I thought we would start by going back a little bit and talking about the adjustments that you make as a woman when you go out into the world that men don't. And I was recalling this conversation that I had with Jay, my husband, probably six or seven years ago. And I remember I was doing a live shot at uh um, holiday market at US Bank Stadium so or something I think that was where it was it was somewhere downtown and I did a live shot there I was live there for the whole show and then I left and went to I think I did an appearance after too so I like hung out for a little bit and then I went to my car and I had parked in a parking ramp that was just right there by the um by the stadium so I walked by myself. Out of the stadium, and it was getting dark because that was like 5 o'clock And in Minnesota in the winter, Marjorie. I mean, we shut things down at 3 p.m. It starts getting dark. (laughs) So it's getting dark. I'm I'm walking, and I'm doing like all my normal things that I was doing to walk to um, my car, which is like I hold my keys a certain way. I hold my phone with it ready to hit like I could hit a button to call somebody at any time. Right when i right. hold it out when i'm by myself in the dark walking out and about and i i generally feel pretty safe and i live in minneapolis i've lived in the city for 10 years i feel less safe now than i probably ever have living in the city but i walked and i um got in the elevator and i did my normal thing which is like where is an emergency button again having my keys i get out of the elevator and i go into go to my car and i look around i stop i look around look for signs of anybody there, walk to my car, quickly get in my car and lock the door immediately, then put my stuff down, then start to go. Okay. So these are the normal things that I do when I'm going somewhere by myself, which Marjorie, I mean, would you say that's like, sounds pretty normal, right?
1: Pretty normal for me. Don't even think about it. It's just the routine of what it's, I do. It's
0: the routine of what you do in order to keep yeah. yourself safe. Yeah. So then a few days later, a conversation happened with, with Jay and we were talking. I don't even know how this came up, but we were talking about something related to the things that women do to versus men. And like that women have it tougher when they leave their homes than men. And Jay was kind of like, well, whatever. And I said, you ask a woman – when the last time she felt scared was when she was out and about, and she will be able to tell you, and oh, yeah. she will name it to you. And she will tell you when the last time she felt scared when she was walking somewhere. And it'll probably be, oh, I was walking down the street and a group of guys cat called me. And so I immediately right. fell, fell, Felt fell, feel really scared. vulnerable. Or I was um, driving and I noticed, boy, this car has been following me a little bit too long. I felt vulnerable. Right. All of right. these things. And I said, the last time I felt scared was... Three days ago when I was leaving that chute and I was walking into that parking ramp because anytime I'm in a parking ramp by myself, I'm oh, afraid. I hate it. I hate it. I'm afraid. And he just had this moment of like, oh my gosh, that is what your every day is like. And I started thinking about then being so conditioned to live that way that you don't even think about it, nor do you understand the type of fight-or-flight stress that is constantly hitting your body as a woman that is not hitting the bodies of men on a day-to-day basis and then what that means for our health, for our wellness, for our sanity, Marjorie. I mean, that's like a regular assault on your body, that stress level.
1: I think it's. it's, you brought up this this topic to me, and... I am a little bit older than you, and but we are conditioned similarly. What's different about the way that we think about this, and I think it's generational, which is really interesting to me, is I never even considered it a stress. It just is. Right. And I think what you're saying is sort of like it's kind of mind-blowing for me because I just don't think about it that way that you do, but I think the way you're thinking about it is absolutely fair. And I feel like, should I be thinking about it that way? <laughs> and it, I mean, it's just – but I think that really speaks to a generational difference between us and what I've been conditioned to feel is acceptable. And you're drawing the line and saying, no, 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 that's not acceptable. I mean, I don't walk by myself at night. Right. I don't. The mm-hmm. last time I think I took chances of going out at night was when I was probably in college when I would go out with girlfriends or walk home by myself. I mean, there were times in D.C. where I would walk home by myself from a party, which was insane. Mm -hmm. There were times when I worked downtown Chicago where I would, you know, have a late edit at like midnight or 11, and and I would sometimes walk to the train station, but more often than not, I would feel really scared when I would do that. Mm -hmm. So I would get a cab, even though it was like 10 blocks, and I love to walk. I mean, 10 blocks is nothing for me, but but at night, at midnight, I'm not going to do that. But even here, I generally don't – I generally don't walk in places alone after dark. I just right. don't. And I never thought – that's just – it's it's weird to me that I just never thought that that's some sort, some sort of infringement on me. So I, I, that's why I think this discussion is really interesting because when we bring it back to sort of best to the nest, I do think about all of the ways that I was conditioned as a young woman – to do the things that you were talking about. I my parents moved us back into Chicago in the early 1970s. We didn't live in a terribly safe neighborhood. They were sort of you know, they were they wanted to be back in the city. They both wanted to be closer to work. But as a young teenager, as a as you, I have three older sisters and I remember my dad, we sold our house when my older sister was about to get her license. Mm-hmm. And we sold it because my father knew that she would be driving, and he did not feel good about the walk from our garage into the house. Yeah. And so we moved for his daughters. So we moved into a high-rise where we would pull into a parking garage where there was a parking attendant. Right. And everything – he felt much safer about us – doing that. And all of those things, they just just sort of wash over me like, of course, of course. And I do think what's going on in London is really interesting where women are saying, and and you can give a little background of the story, where women are saying, no, this isn't fair.
0: It's not fair because even when you do all the things that you're supposed to do, it's not enough. And that was the case for 33-year-old Sarah Everard, who disappeared as she walked home in London on March 3rd. And she was found dead a week later. So this story from the New York Times about the reaction to her death, the headline that really uh, struck me and that got me looking more into this was, in rage over Sarah Everard killing, women's bargain, in quotes, is put on notice. So here's what happened. Sarah Everard uh, took a longer route that was well lit and populated. That's a safety precaution. That's an inconvenience for her. To have to do because she is afraid for her safety at her core, which I would argue most women are. She wore bright clothes and shoes that she could run in. So she's not walking around in high heels because she's prepared knowing I don't walk home in, in high heels. Right. I need something right. that in case I am attacked, I need to be able to run. She checked in with her boyfriend to let him know when she was leaving and it still wasn't enough to save her life. And she was killed. And what's interesting about this is that it, um, in London, the conversation has set off this social movement, and this is what the New York Times reports, that feels somehow different from those that have come before. Women from all walks of life demanding safety from male violence and demanding that the police, the government, and men collectively be the ones to bear the burden of ensuring it. And that's what I think is so fascinating about this is that the tide is turning, I believe from we women need to work together and with the men in their life to ensure their safety. And now women are saying enough is enough because even that isn't enough to keep us safe. Even that isn't enough to make sure that we're okay walking home. Now, We're not the problem. You guys are the problem, and you got to
1: figure out how to fix it. And I think that that's really interesting. I do have a problem with that language. You guys are the problem. I I have really strong – I mean, I really do. I think that that's where we have to be really careful. In that article, they talked about how one of the representatives, a female representative, had suggested that instead of women not being able to go out at night, that men should have a curfew. And it was not. I mean, it was not a serious proposal, so, yeah, right? But it it started a little bit of chatter, and I think that's where that's. I think as women, we have to look at it as we can't we can't point the finger and say you guys have to fix this, but we also can't be responsible ourselves to fix it. I just think we have to be super careful with the language, because we can never forget how many wonderful good, caring men there are. And that's that's the concern for me is, yes, we do, but we need to. And I, I, I say this too about feminism in general. I'm a feminist, hands down. I believe in equality for women in the workplace, on the pay scale, in every way. But that doesn't mean that in being a feminist, I want to diminish men. So in every conversation we have, we have to remember that it's a human conversation. It is a human conversation where we have to take care to make sure that who the people are that are going to help us feel that they are embraced by us in that struggle. Do you know what I mean?
0: I get that. Yeah, and I get that. I understand that perspective. I just think that what what's happening here is the shift of the conversation is – not what women need to constantly be doing to t- to protect ourselves but what are we collectively doing to stop men from perpetuating violence against women and i'm not saying that all men are bad by any means i mean i'm married to one i'm raising two little ones and i yeah. and i am surrounded by good men all the time i mean i work right. with amazing men i feel really right. great about that but when you look Statistically and collectively, I mean, when you see numbers, Marjorie, that say that a woman is more likely to be killed by her husband or boyfriend than anyone else, that's a problem. When you look at prison numbers and you look at this epidemic of men in prison, you look at who is statistically committing the most violent crime across the world. It's men. And so I, I, I get that. And I also, I understand the personal connection and wanting to make sure that the language isn't insinuating that all men are bad. I don't think that's true either. But at the same time, I also understand these women who are saying, I am sick and tired of this. I'm sick and tired of having to of realizing how indoctrinated I've been in my life to be constantly living in fear and how now I'm raising my own daughters to be that way and I'm tired of it and I'm tired of the conversation always focusing on women should take self-defense classes. Women need to do this. You need to dress like this. You need to wear this type of stuff. You need to take all of these precautions when you're just trying to be a person out into the world and the conversation not focusing on what are we collectively doing to raise boys who are not turning into violent men. What is happening? There is something happening because I see these beautiful little boys all the time everywhere. I have two little ones. I take them to school. I see them. And something is happening in a greater percentage to boys than it is to girls that is causing them to lead a violent life that isn't happening as much with girls. And it's just like crushing.
1: well, these are the big issues. I mean – and this is where – this is where, again, we go back to language where I, I am uncomfortable with – men, you need to do something about this. I'm, and I'm not saying that's how you're saying it. But yeah. – because what we need to do, to exactly your point, is we need to look at these young boys and these young girls and we need to make sure that we are serving them well with their education, with their food sustainability, with, with poverty, I mean, where does where does violence come from? It comes from a lack of education, a lack of hope, a lack of good nutrition, a lack of seeing a way out, uh, mental health, yeah, trauma. I mean, trauma, I mean there are, there's so much that goes into and I believe me, I am not I am not saying violence against women is forgivable. What I'm saying is, is it doesn't do us any good to rail against it. What we have to do, and I, I'm not an activist, but I think, and and this is where it gets so hard with the language is what is at the core. Because I think Elizabeth, you just said something very sweet and very empathetic. You look at, you know, you you have two young sons. You see lots of little boys because you're going to their class, you're going mm-hmm. to the daycare center, you're going. You see this. What is what is happening? In men's lives and at what age and what messages are they getting that violence is acceptable. Mm -hmm. And I think I – my sons were raised at a time where it was the beginning of very violent video games. And and that was a really scary thing as a mom. And because it was new and it was so surprising to me and we didn't have a gaming system in our house. That was my choice. But – you look at these things and there are so many studies done and I have not done the research, but you look at all of the things, all of the messages that come into men's lives at a very young age now, everything they can find on the internet, everything. And the same, just to separate out the discussion a little bit for women, you look at the messages of sexualization that are coming at them at such a very young age. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think when we talk about, Men and violence, it's hard to have the nuanced, really smart discussion about what do we do about this. And I get it. The women in London, they're just trying to have a vigil and they're angry. So you can't, you can't have the nuanced discussion, nuanced discussion perhaps at a rally. But I think it's incumbent on all of us as we begin to raise our children and, and figure this out and figure out What is the way to go? What is the systemic problem that this is happening? And statistically, is it changing or has it always been so? And finally, thank God, we're at the tipping point. Yeah. I mean, for me, the statistic that – and I don't know that it's exactly right – that I knew about growing up because my mother and father used to talk about it with us was the statistic was that one in four women – would be sexually assaulted in her lifetime. Yes, yes. And it was particularly disturbing to my father because he had four daughters.
0: So he's like, which one is it going to be?
1: Right. Right. And so hence the move, hence the things he was trying to do, I think, to protect us. But you look at that and I, going back and it's, you know, a lot of this conversation is difficult because it forces me to think back to how was I raised? What do I think about this? How did I protect myself? How many Mm -hmm. times was I scared? Yeah. And... I think about it, and it's so weird to think, Elizabeth that I know I knew tangentially whether they were in two classes above me or in in my class or a friend of my family's, I know three women that were raped and one that was murdered, yeah, before I was thirteen. oh my gosh marjorie and so and it's so odd to me to look back at that and think. How was that discussed within the family? Not flippantly for sure. I mean that was not – in our family, it was not like, oh, this happened. It was quite tragic and sad and awful. But you just think about that statistically. It's so shocking to me that I was tangentially touched by that violence and – and, of course, I did the same things you do. You, you you walk with your keys in your hand. You have some sort of alarm. I I, I will do anything at night if I – especially, you know, when I used to have events to not park in a parking deck. Right. And so, I mean, I think this is – I think the anger is good. The anger is so good because it leads to change. But I think in that we have to be really mindful of how we do that and how we talk about it.
0: I think women f- are feeling like they've done enough though. Like it's this is how much we've done. We can't do any more. It's uh, there's this article talks about this safety bargain that women make. Yeah. That in order to buy their own safety from male violence, they have to make the right choices and that if a woman fails to do so, her fate is her own fault. So Ugh. online women were sharing details of their side of that bargain, what they wore, where they walked whom they checked in with before they left and after they got home when they would go out alone or with other women or with men. And then other women online were reflecting on their own close calls saying, like, this happened. Thank God I was wearing trainers. So thank God I was wearing running shoes. Thank God I was carrying a backpack. I, I had a girlfriend tell me a story of being essentially stalked by a man who was assaulting women on her college campus. Oof. And the trauma that ensued after that and the shame that she felt and the fear even in telling her parents so that because she was afraid they would pull her out of school because this happened. And she was saying, thank God this happened. Thank God I listened to my gut. Thank God this. Right. And, um, well, and those conversations that you have – with yourself and the, and, and I think it is just this wake up to the, we've been ingrained to believe, to, you know, your parents teach you that you have to do all of these things when you're out and about as a girl because you do. Yeah. <laughs> you it's do. your
1: responsibility. Yeah. It's your because
0: responsibility what are they going to do? It's not like your parents can go out and tell every man out there, don't touch my daughter. Don't hurt my daughter. They have to – the only person they can control is you. And so they're trying to provide you with as many tools as you can, right. as they can when you're out and about. But if you think about that and you think about the fear-based – training that is being instilled in women at such a young age always what what kind of no wonder women have higher rates of anxiety no right. wonder we have higher rates of depression right. because we right. live in a state of vigilance and fear that men don't live in
1: that they don't have to live in and that's a real problem when um When Ian was studying for his Ph.D., he had to – he was working on what his dissertation would be about, Mm -hmm. and he he did his dissertation on true crime. And he had – and true crime, a lot of people, when they think about it, especially now in the way that true crime is on television, they think about it as sort of sensationalized crime stories. When, In essence, it is, but in the history of true crime, a lot of the stories would be – Sort of sensationalized, and they would be about women. And oh my yeah, husband, like don, don, don.
0: It seemed like they had the perfect marriage,
1: <laughs> right, right. And but my husband got interested in it because one of his relatives was shot and murdered in the 1930s by a very prominent man in Kentucky. I think he at the time he was the lieutenant governor. Yeah, and she had rejected his proposal, and she was shot. And it's a long story. And he actually wrote a book about it. And that interest in, in that sort of and, and she was on the cover, his I can't remember the exact relation, but Vernagar was on the cover in the 1930s of a lot of true crime magazines, wow. because it was a huge story. The New York yeah. Times covered it. It was a big story. So he wrote a book about it, but in doing the research on true crime, he went and did the last interview in Seattle, and I went with him with an author named Ann Rule. And Anne Rule is one of the leading true crime novelists or writers. It's not novels. They're they're nonfiction. Mm-hmm. True crime writers in the country. She has since passed away. Ian did the last interview with her. She wrote the book The Stranger Beside Me, which was the definitive book about Ted Bundy. Yeah. What was so interesting in the interview, she talked about – and she started writing true crime I think in the 70s or maybe even the 60s. What she talked about is that she wrote true crime – as a cautionary tale for women so that they could learn how to protect themselves. Yeah. And it is no surprise that the biggest consumers of true crime, it's women. And, And statistically and within the data, that's who reads the true crime books and that's who watches the true crime television. And Anne Rule always felt very strongly that writing the book about Ted Bundy was to help warn women about predatory men gosh and i thought that was so fascinating that women didn't understand quite yet the danger that was out there and that true crime through the years has had been the way sort of that the, the storytelling way to teach women those lessons of how to protect yourself the reason verna gar the woman that my husband wrote about was on the cover of those true crime magazines in a way it was a cautionary tale that the men in your life can hurt you. Yeah. And so it's, I think there's such an, there, there's a long history to the discussion that we're having about, about as women, how are we supposed to protect ourselves? How much is our responsibility and what's the next step? And I think mm-hmm. that's what you're talking about, which I think is so important is what's the next step so that this isn't how it's going to be for generations of women to come.
0: You're right. I think you're totally right. That's so fascinating, Marjorie. And I, you yeah. Know, and when, when, which interestingly, that brings us to our next conversation, which is even about if you think you're not making a bargain, maybe you're just making a bargain when you're out and about, right? You're doing these checks. You're doing all of these things. Right. I'm doing all of these things so that I can be safe. The next element of that are the bargains that we're making when we're in the workplace, just to be seen as the right type of woman in order to succeed. And I had a friend send me this article that I thought was so fascinating with the headline, All Career Advice for Women is a Form of Gaslighting. And here's what the the sub-headline says, It's the society we operate in that needs fixing, not how we ask for money, the tone of our voices, or our outfits. And and this piece I found to be so intriguing, too, because it's about all of the things that women have to do to sort of fit into the appropriate idea of what a woman is in the workplace. And here's part of it. If you're a working woman, you've likely been inundated with advice about how to ensure that gender double standards don't impede your brilliant career. Assert yourself boldly at meetings in an appropriately low tone of voice, yet purr pleasingly when negotiating salary. Be smart, but never superior. A team player, though not a pushover. Ever effective, yet not intimidatingly intellectual. Calibrate ambition correctly so that none are offended by your sense of self-worth, but all seek to reward your value and dress the part.
1: Yeah, this one's again tricky for me, I think, generationally. Because I can see how far we've come. Mm -hmm. And so I... I have perhaps maybe a more optimistic view of where we are, which may make me incredibly naive. I'll cop to that just at the get go, but for me, and I also haven't i mean realistically i I have not had a traditional career in any way shape or form right you know, and I haven't worked in traditionally dominant corporate cultures i think i have i have had to live up to some of those things i mean we i think I've told you the story before that my first job in news, the news director, who I adored and was really good to me, but one of the first speeches he gave me was, you make sure you don't cry in the control room, because I was Mm. only the second woman to ever sit in the control room. Right, And it was a line of men, you know, it was all men and me. And there was a certain amount of hazing that went on in the control room until I just, but I Again, it's, it's so interesting that generationally I just found my way through it and I didn't – but, I, but I, I, I say that very cognizant that I do not w- want to minimize really harmful workplace environments. Mm-hmm. And I think because I didn't grow up professionally in a typical corporate male-dominated structure, I think I was able to avoid a lot of those issues – so it's, and I know they exist. I I know they absolutely do. I think though, I wonder if there is something that we just, though,
0: subconsciously contort ourselves to try to fit what we think we need to fit in order to succeed, and and that it might be sort of similar to the fear. It's just what we do. You figure right. out what works, and so, and you see other women and how it works, and you see kind of who is succeeding, and maybe. What different men expect of you, and then you figure out how to make that work. I think the argument yep. here is that for so long, all of these different things in terms of succeeding in the workplace and managing your own safety have been about DIY. Do it yourself. That these right. are the things that you need to do to, 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 um, to manage the inequality that is just inherent in our system. And now the demands from women are, the system needs to change. We've done enough.
1: I think there's a lot of truth in that. And when you say how we contort ourselves even sort of subconsciously, yeah. I and, and this is why this discussion is so interesting to me. And I will cop to the fact right here that my ideas are not fully formed because looking back at this, it, it gets very confusing for me. Yeah. And I will tell you a perfect example of that. So I couldn't sleep the other night. So when I can't sleep, I'll go to Netflix and I'm just going to watch a stupid movie because <laughs> inevitably that will put me to sleep. So the stupid movie on Netflix right now was Two Weeks Notice. Oh, yeah. And Sandra Bullock and Hugh Grant, both charming, charming, fine. This'll This will be fine. This is not going to make me think about too much. It'll slow my racing thoughts. It did exactly the opposite. <laughs> because it's 2021. Because <laughs> it was, well, and it was so incredibly offensive. <laughs> it was. The movie came out in 2002 and was incredibly in- offensive. <laughs> Hugh Grant plays this sort of playboy boss who hires lawyers that are blonde and buxom so he can sleep with them. (laughs) Isn't that so funny? This is such great entertainment for 2002. Yes, it's so funny that that's what he does and, oh, what a cad. You know, these women come in and he immediately sexualizes them and that's so funny. And then Sandra Bullock comes into his life and she's Harvard trained. She's kind of dowdy. You know, she's kind of a hippie. And she's a brunette. She's a brunette, and he needs to hire a smart lawyer because his his brother told him, look, I'm tired of you sleeping with all of the lawyers. You got to hire somebody smart. So he hires Sandra Bullock, and guess what? They fall in love, and while they're falling in love, she becomes ever increasingly more beautiful. (laughs) I was so offended. This did not help me sleep. It just made me really, really mad.
0: This is
1: very good. Your retelling of this movie is bringing me a lot of joy. Oh my God. And that's when I think, oh my God, like how much did I just take in over the years? Like how much? Because <laughs> <laughs> I remember seeing this movie in the theater and not having this reaction to it. <laughs> So it's frightening. It's it is,
0: frightening. It is frightening slash hopefully empowering because yes. I think we are at this point where we're realizing and we're talking about the patriarchal system here. There are plenty of other conversations to be had uh, that are being had in terms of uh, the system that has set white people up for success and has left out people of color and right. uh, and the conversations that are being had about the systems in place. That allowed and have allowed certain things to be acceptable and certain privileges to be in place and then other people to have to try to fit their way in all the time and why that's just not okay anymore. So the hope, I think, and and getting mad about it is is certainly one thing, but the hope is that gosh, Marjorie, I mean, look how far we've come. That in 2002, I bet if Sandra Bullock watched that movie that she was
1: in, she oh. would just have to hide her eyes. She'd be horrified. Yeah. And 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 you know, when we speak about anger, I suddenly thought Netflix is putting this up like it's no big deal. Yeah. Like, this is a big deal. Right. This is a big deal that this is a movie that we, at one point, found acceptable. Mm -hmm. And I get, I mean, I get comedies, comedy, comedy, comedy. But at the same time, this goes so far beyond that.
0: Right. Right. It does. It does. It's really, I think, going to be fascinating to see. We talk about what we've been talking about so much is this generational difference, too, Marjorie, of just even in one generation, how we're looking at things shifting. And so I yep. look at my six-year-old daughter yep. and then my little boys as well. And I think, um, how will things be for them? I mean, if we've been able to continue to move forward and and hopefully even that movie not being that funny anymore, <laughs> right. what will things be like in 20 years? I hope that they're going to be a lot better. And I hope that not as many women feel like they need to be checking the parking ramp And constantly afraid of where they park so that they can just live their life. Because imagine the space that we are, that's being taken up by fear and trying to fit in all the time. And if that space was opened up for other things, how much more beautiful our homes and the world could be. Exactly. (sighs) Love that. Good stuff, Marjorie Punnett. (laughs) Take a deep breath. I got to get like a... Chocolate milkshake or something. <laughs> take that the edge That sounds off. really good. Doesn't that <laughs> sound so good right now? <laughs> I'm totally doing that today. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. All right. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love that too.
1: Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Best of the Nest or go to bestofthenest.com to subscribe to our newsletter. We are the podcast that brings you home. That newsletter doesn't really exist, but we're going to get to it in 2021. It's, it's going to happen. <laughs>